is forever praised. Amen. Well, good to be with you. What a cozy spot to read the Bible. Now, I don't know about you, but I've found this a hard week. And so uh, can I start by saying that this morning, Graham preached a cracker on Romans chapter 8, and he showed God's promises that even though we suffer, God's future for us is incredible, his work in us is unstoppable, and his love for us is unshakable. And so I wanted to encourage you with those truths and to say you might want to jump onto YouTube and watch this morning's service if your soul needs to be reminded of those promises But tonight we come to the second part of our holiday series on who we are as humans. And it's critical because we are engaged in a spiritual fight. It's really loud in this room. Can someone turn that down? Thanks. Uh, It's critical because we're engaged in a spiritual fight for our souls, for our holiness, and also to see the world saved. And one of the main battlegrounds is the way that we think about ourselves. And that might not seem obvious, but one place that you see it is in how we work out what's right. How does a person today work that out? One way is you scroll Instagram and you see a meme that really speaks to you and you save that one. It's what grabs me. There's a hint that it's how we feel about things that's the main guide. This feels right. And maybe you've heard something said in church or online and thought that might make someone feel hurt, unsafe, uncomfortable. And so you find yourself wanting to reject what was said. It seems harmful, therefore it can't be right. Well, that way of thinking, it seems so attractive, doesn't it? So natural, so good. How could it be bad to worry about people's feelings? And it's good to care about people's feelings, but it's not the way the Bible works out what is right. And if you buy it, it will destroy you. You'll find yourself unable to work out what's really right and good. But more than that, it will destroy your spiritual life. You'll end up in a way of thinking that's opposed to God and his word. A real danger, actually, of falling away. The crucial thing that we'll see tonight is that that whole way of thinking is actually built on a wrong view of ourselves. Last week, we saw the glory of humanity. We're made in the image of God. But tonight, we'll see what's gone wrong with us. Three things we'll see. Number one, that we're fallen. Number two, that the fall affects every part of us. It's not just that we sin, but our bodies, our emotions, even our thinking has been broken. But thirdly, how Jesus restores what was lost And then we'll use those truths to then expose the foolishness of the way our world approaches things. Now, normally we go through books of the Bible and we bring out what each passage has to say. But it can be helpful sometimes to step back and pull together a number of different passages on a topic to get the big picture. But it is more dangerous. And so have your Bibles out, check what I say, and let me pray that God will help us. Heavenly Father, our hearts don't want to hear these truths. Our minds fight against believing them. Help me to speak what's true and good and life-giving and give all of us the humility to receive what you say. Amen. Well, there was a question left hanging at the end of last week's sermon. And if you, if you missed last week's sermon, uh, it's foundational for what we're going to talk about tonight. So jump onto YouTube later and, and, and find it and have a listen. But here it is. Here's the question. I wonder if you, if you thought of it. If we're made in the image of God... In a world that has a good order to it, 
that shows the best way to fulfill our humanity, then how did it all get so bad? Why is history filled with environmental destruction, selfish sex, broken marriages, oppression, violence, not to mention lockdowns and pandemics and people who have house parties in pandemics and all those things? What's gone wrong? And likely you know that the Bible says we have. Romans chapter 1, that passage that was just read for us, verse 21, says, Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The passage goes on and it's not pretty, but what we'll see is that it explains our, well, our world so well. Now, I'm sure some of you will find that familiar, but you might be surprised just how far the effects of sin run. So here's the first thing to see. Number one, we are fallen. Now, we prefer to think well of ourselves. You know, we know our best angle. We, we curate what we post. But that's part of the problem, especially if it prevents us from finding the solution. We're like the person who gets headaches, and so we pop a Panadol. And we can't sleep, so we download a meditation app. And we've got no energy, so we smash Red Bulls. But it still doesn't make sense until finally we get the diagnosis. It's cancer. And only then can we get the right treatment. And as backwards as it seems, the worst possible news actually is the one that makes sense of the symptoms and points us to the cure. as the path out. The Bible says that humans are not the way we were made to be. Human nature has changed. It has fallen from its glory. Through a catastrophic event, something so terrible has happened that every part of this beautiful creation was damaged. This morning, Graham gave the, the best illustration, I'm going to steal it right now, of getting a, a brand new iPhone. You know, you've got the, the beautiful box and you suck the lid off. And you're just there admiring it in all its glory when you slip. And you drop it. And it goes smash on the ground. The screen smashes. The camera breaks. Uh, it, it never quite, the, the, the speaker never quite works properly anymore. And it's frustrating now to read messages because it's all scratched. And, and every time you swipe, you kind of hurt your finger a little bit. That's such a good picture of the world that God made so good. Genesis 1 and 2, flick over there. God says at the end of Genesis 1, it was very good, but it's fallen and now it's broken. And so come to Genesis chapter 3, where verse 1, we meet Satan in the form of a serpent. Satan's not a cartoon character. And he's also not another God. The Bible says he's a, a real spiritual being called by Jesus the father of lies whose goal, according to Jesus, is to destroy what God has made. And so he tempts Adam and Eve. Now notice his strategy. Verse 1, he misquotes God's word. He, his strategy is to attack God's word. Firstly, he misrepresents it. Then verses 4 and 5, he implies that he really cares more about them than God does. He's got their good at heart in a way God doesn't. You see, God didn't say that you can't eat from any tree. That's what Satan alleges. Chapter 2, verse 9, it says there's a, an abundance of trees. And chapter 2, verse 16, he says the opposite. He says you're free to eat from any tree. They lacked nothing. God was their father. The world was their playground. Now, there was one tree, verse 17, that had poison fruit. 
There is a test of their obedience here, but it's a pretty easy test. Eat anything, except that one. Eat anything. But Satan, verse 1, misrepresents God and misrepresents God's word to make God sound harsh. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree? And he implies that he cares more about you than God does. And that still happens today, whether it's BuzzFeed or your boyfriend, beware of those who suggest that God is wrong about the consequences, that God's holding back something good from you, that he doesn't really care about you as much as I do. It sounds so caring, but it's following in the footsteps of the father of lies as he seeks to undermine God's word. And so verse 6, they eat which doesn't sound that bad, but the consequences have been pretty big, so let's have another look. What was the sin? At its root, we twisted ourselves against our maker. Firstly, pride and ambition. The temptation, verse 5, was to be like God. It's not enough to be a law keeper. No, I want to decide what's right. I'll be a law maker. Not enough to be made in the image of God. They sought to be equal with God. Pride. Secondly, discontent and ungratefulness. God had given them all they could have ever wanted, but it wasn't enough. There was also unbelief. They didn't trust God. Unfaithfulness. They weren't loyal to God. Disobedience. They didn't follow God. And irreverence. They didn't respect God. Don't imagine the sin was the fruit. It was the person that God made twisting ourselves against our creator. Something so terribly serious. Well, look at the effects. Shockwaves through all creation. The crack in the window that spread through the whole pane. God's world was in harmony like an orchestra until we ignored the conductor and started playing our own thing and broke the harmony, not just of our part, the whole lot. The whole ecosystem thrown out of balance. The bug in the program that causes the whole computer to freeze up. Don't miss our connectedness to creation. When we as creation rebelled, all of creation feels the effects. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17... God says, cursed is the ground because of you. He gives little pictures in his his poem. Verse 19, work which existed before the fall and was enjoyable and meaningful becomes frustrating and futile. Verse 16, there's pain in birthing and raising children. Verse 19, death itself. And so Romans chapter 8 verse 22 says, The whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. The universe and everything in it is now broken from the atoms up. Doesn't that fit with our experience of the world? Beautiful and broken. I take it this is in some ways the natural consequence of our sin, but also God's punishment. And his mercy. Because the problem that this has caused between us and God is invisible. And so God has left a visible sign in the brokenness of our world so that we'd realize something's gone wrong here and we'd look for the solution. 
And if you have turned to Romans 8, look up that verse. Don't miss that there will be a solution, not just for our souls and our bodies, but for all creation as well. Verse 21, Romans 8, 21, says the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. God promises to reverse the effects of the fall. These pains are like childbirth so that a glorious new creation could be born, a new world, a new universe. And the verse there says that this creation will be liberated, not just thrown out and replaced. Now, I think it's going to take a pretty big renovation. The Bible uses pictures of the elements melting, but out of it, a world healed to such an extent that it is new. That's the hope the Bible offers. But in the meantime, the fall has broken the physical world. Not just fires and floods and droughts and viruses, but our bodies too. Sickness, cancer, disability, mental illness, depression, anorexia, xenomelia, which is the, the feeling that one of your arms or legs doesn't belong to you and you have a strong desire to have it amputated. Let me, let me briefly just, um, apply some of this to anxiety disorder, for example. The relationship between our bodies and the external world and our brains and, and the chemicals, all those relationships have been broken. And so mental illness is not a sin, not in and of itself. Like any sickness, it's part of living in a broken world. Our brains don't react rightly. But it's complicated, isn't it? Because all of us find it hard to trust God. And so sometimes anxiety can be a sinful unwillingness to trust Him. And the complexity is it can be hard to separate, can't it? They can feed each other. And so what I'd suggest is that we should just assume that all those things are happening at once and treat it all. When someone is, is sick, we don't blame them. We have compassion. Instead of feeling guilty, seek treatment. Live a healthy life. If necessary, see a GP, get a referral to a psychologist. But also, seek to grow your trust in God. Where you think that there might be sin involved, repent. Ask for forgiveness. And know that some anxiety is normal. It's just your brain saying, I care about this. And it might be a prompt for you to bring it to God in prayer. And look forward to the day when you'll neither feel anxiety nor have anything to fear, the bad kind of anxiety. So there's the effects of the fall on creation. What about on us? Flick back to Genesis chapter 3 and immediately you see Adam and Eve feel guilt and shame, verse 7. Their conscience is going off like a smoke alarm. And the beautiful naked and no shame relationship that Adam and Eve enjoyed from the end of chapter 2 that was built on perfect trust, well, now they've got something to hide in themselves and something to fear in the other. If he won't listen to God, who knows what he'll do? And so they instinctively cover up and relationships ever since have been marked by things to hide and things to fear. Inward shame and social strain, and then in walks God. They hide, verse 10. The guilty conscience rightly afraid to be in the presence of God the judge. 
But more than that, now that we've set ourselves up as lawmakers, God becomes a rival. And so Romans chapter 8 verse 7 says that we are hostile to God. Look at this verse, it's on the screen. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Now that human nature has twisted itself against its maker, we not only fear God as judge, but hate him as king. We now have a sinful nature. And so Romans chapter 5 tells how this twist in our nature becomes our new normal. Just as sick roots lead to sick branches in trees, so Adam and Eve's kids take after their parents. And it flows down. I'll tell you, I've got two kids. I'm probably not the only parent that'll say that they didn't teach their kids to be selfish and disobedient. They're naturals at it. Human nature has been changed by this act. And so we don't just copy Adam and Eve, we inherit their fallen nature. And so, of course, we then do copy them. And we sin ourselves, all of us, are sinners by nature and by choice. That's why no amount of education, no structure in society, no technology has ever been able to fix us. We're fallen. We have a sinful nature. There's the first point, the big picture. But how deep do the problems go? Is the sinful nature like some part of us, but luckily we've got all these other parts that we can use to fight it? Unfortunately not. And that's point number two. The fall affects every part of us. Our heart and desires, even our thinking, is broken. Now, this is actually the most important piece as we engage with our world's way of approaching things. And so have a look at this. Firstly, our sinful nature affects our heart and desires. We saw it in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Ephesians 4, verse 22, talks about the old self and says it's being corrupted by its deceitful desires. A famous verse, Jeremiah 17, 9, says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. You are brokenhearted. Your desires are messed up. Your feelings aren't reliable. God made us so that our minds would see what's good and our desires would then want what's good and our wills would then choose what's good. But that doesn't happen. Even when we know something's good, how often do we find that's not really what we want? Our hearts no longer love what's good. Instead, we love ourselves and sin. Our desires are affected by sin. But even when you do seem to, to, to want the right thing, how often do you find yourself then doing the opposite? Our sinful nature also affects our will and our ability to choose. Romans chapter 7, verse 19, Paul says, I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. We're divided in ourselves. Even if we can summon up some noble desire, we still find ourselves choosing sin. Isn't the whole self-help industry built on that? If we could just keep our good intentions, there'd be no such thing as support groups. How many times have you said, I'll never do that sin again? Only to find again. Your sinful nature wrecks your ability to choose what is good. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, as we saw it says, we, we do not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. 
It's important to remember this is not something outside of us that's stopping us and making us. No, no, no. This, is, this problem is within us. It's our own badness that makes us unable. And so what about our minds? Surely at least our thinking is intact. No. Our sinful nature breaks even our thinking. We saw that in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Our thinking, or their thinking, became futile. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Now, is this just like um, the iPhone when it gets onto low battery mode and it just slows right down? No, although, as we, as we saw, our bodies are broken and that has affected our brains. But this is actually a moral inability to think straight. We stopped wanting to find the truth. The truth is that, that God is God, not me. I'm a sinner before him. I need his forgiveness. I need to, to follow his ways. The sinful nature doesn't want to hear that. So we close our eyes. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 says, They are darkened in their understanding due to the hardening of their hearts. When we want to sin, instead of our mind saying, Stop, that's not good. Instead, our minds kick into gear and find reasons that it's okay. A Christian named Thomas Cranmer 400 years ago said this, What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. It defends us. And it turns out that uh, 400 years later, brain scans are showing this exact thing. Jonathan Haid, I don't know how to say his last name, but in, in the book The Righteous Mind, he talks about how our conscious thinking now acts like a lawyer coming in at the last second to defend our desires. Well, what about this as a glaring example of our fallen minds? A quote from Miroslav Volf, In a world so manifestly drenched with evil, everybody is innocent in their own eyes. Doesn't this make sense of life? We've got the ability to think and write symphonies and design vaccines, but this beautiful ability has been turned in on itself. And so the closer that the topic gets to God and what he wants of us, the more our mind fights to distort that truth. There's the picture. It's not pretty, is it? Our desires are fallen. Our wills are fallen. Even our thinking is fallen. Now, what about the good things that we see people do? Maybe a question you've got. Let me say a few things briefly. Number one, God has given us a conscience and a sense of him. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 to 15, says that the requirements of God's law are written on our hearts. Though we try to suppress it, we can't do it fully, and it still bubbles up, and it reminds us of some of God's ways. Secondly, God in his kindness provides what's called restraining grace, or common grace. In his love for what is made, God restrains us from being as evil as we would otherwise be. We're like a car that's revving as hard as it can away from God and towards sin, but God's hand is kindly on the handbrake, holding us back. We even have a saying for that, actually, there but for the grace of God, go I. Third thing to say about that is that we are capable of doing things that on a human level are good deeds, helping people, becoming disciplined and reliable and kind, but... If that's done out of pride rather than a desire to please God, 
then it's actually still an act of rebellion against him in its own way. Every act has mixed motives, desire for approval or power or fame, or even just a sense of self-esteem that's not connected with humility before God. If God's word says that we are sinners who need saving, then even those walls of good deeds trying to save ourselves can actually be a way of rejecting him and his word. It looks good, but it's a way to keep God away, to tame him. And so if the essence of goodness is to be rightly related to God, then it's possible to do things that look good and and are good on a human level, and yet they're still sinning against God. Put those things together, that's how we can be sinful through and through, and yet society still functions. We're not as bad as we could be. We've still got consciences. God's grace restrains, but the fall affects every part of us. And that brings us to the Bible's answer, which is not be better. There is a solution, but it's not that. If you think that's the answer, you still haven't understood the problem. We can't do it. Not because someone else is stopping us, but because we stop us, our own sinfulness. By yourself, you cannot choose God. That's the whole point of Jesus. The message of the Bible, the gospel, is that you can't save yourself, but God can save you. God is not content to let the people that he made in his image fall into ruin. Now, some Christians think that our sin means that we're worthless. And Romans chapter 3, verse 12, does say we've become worthless, but it means morally. It means we can't claim anything from God. We're not owed anything from God. But as we saw last week, the image of God in us is damaged, but it's not destroyed. You still have value because you still carry God's image and he still loves you. Now, you would never turn to God, but God came to earth for you. Your sin affects every part of your life, but Jesus lived a perfect life. We broke the world, but Jesus, who made the world, let himself be broken. Your conscience runs away from God as judge, but Jesus approached and took the punishment that you fear. And the Bible says that the one who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took your sinfulness on himself And he suffered God's punishment for you in your place so you don't have to. And so the Bible says this about the person who turns to trust in Jesus. Number one, your sins are forgiven. Your track record is clean. You are washed white as snow in God's eyes. And secondly, that God's anger is taken away. Peace with God. You're adopted into his family and you begin a relationship with him that's based on friendship and not fear. With him as your father, not your rival. And the gospel is not that Jesus helps you to earn this. 
He does it all for you and he gives it to you as a gift. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a great salvation. But our salvation doesn't stop there. The third point is that Jesus restores all that we lost. The image of God in us that was damaged by sin then begins to be restored. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit who brings the power of God to renew us from the inside out. Firstly, your heart and your will. God says, I will give you, this is Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The twist in your heart against God is being straightened out. That happens immediately when you become a Christian, though the, the kinks take some time to iron out. And that then enables the renewing of your mind as well. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says that God's Spirit helps our minds understand spiritual things as we hear from God in His Word. I've summarized there, verses 11 to 15, you can have a look later. But more and more, the truth of God's Word reshapes our thinking so that in Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, we can learn what is good again. And we can love what is good again. And we can live what is good again. And he begins that work right now, but we're all works in progress in this life. And the Bible says that we will be perfected when we reach the new creation. Our hearts, our minds, even our bodies fully restored forever. No more suffering, that's good news. No more sickness. I'm quite excited, no more sin ever again. Let me be clear, the transformation is not the way that you earn salvation. This is actually the gift he gives you in the salvation that he gives. You simply give your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And then you're in. And he begins this work of transformation in you. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 puts it like this. And we all, who with unveiled faces behold also contemplate the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Come to Jesus if you haven't already, and brothers and sisters, if you have, be humbled by this. Paul says, I know nothing good lies in me that is in my flesh. But be hope-filled by this. He's not finished with you yet. Your battle against sin will end one day. And he will restore all that we've lost. You will be glorious with him in glory as you were made to be. That's your identity. Your destiny. That is how you fulfill your humanity. Now there's the Bible's picture of us. And I want to then step back and show how that exposes the foolishness of the way that our culture thinks. 
Let me start with what our culture thinks. Our world says there's nothing except the here and now. I've drawn pictures. There we go. It's backwards on the camera. That's our worldview. There's nothing except the here and now. There's no God in charge. There's no order to the world. I've, I've tried to draw the order like a little Google map. So how do we decide how to live? If there's no moral order, then, then what would be relevant? Well, the rocks don't care. It's feelings. The only thing left to care about is our feelings. What else would matter? And so the most important thing for each of us to do is to live out our own feelings and don't get in the way of anyone else living out their feelings. Does that ring true for you? Is that the way our society thinks? We saw last week, though, that the Bible says we were made into a world with an order. Uh, this picture. There is a God in charge. There is a map there. There is something that matters beyond just our feelings. And that's actually good news. Because if we say there's no map, no direction, no destination, no meaning, no rules, then of course the next generation is going to turn out empty and anxious and uncertain and despairing. It's exactly what we're seeing. The Bible says... Wisdom is proved by her children. You don't see the, the problems of a worldview in the first generation. It takes some time. But the new generations coming through are showing the problems. It sounded freeing, but it's been deadly. But because there's no order to the world in, in, in the way our world thinks, then here's what it means to be human. It means just to express who you really are on the inside. What is it that makes you an individual? Life is about being true to that, being true to who you are inside. To not live a lie, but instead follow the direction of your inner desires and so find happiness. Do you agree that's what most people think today that it means to be a fulfilled human? A person named Carl Truman has written a book on this called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a beast of a book. But he points out how different this is to how they thought even just a few generations ago, where a person may have found their identity in their responsibilities and their relationships. Life was about fulfilling your obligations, as a citizen, a son or a daughter, a father or a mother. And there, I looked to others for my sense of self. But our culture says, look within. Don't ask, have I been true to my relationships with others? But have I been true to myself? To fulfill what it means to be human is to pursue what feels right to you. Now that's worth paying attention to because that's almost the exact opposite of the Bible's message. But it's the air that we breathe in our culture, isn't it? And if we start to breathe it in and believe it, then we're going to have problems every time the Bible calls us or anybody to do something different to what feels right to them on the inside. And the Bible does that a lot, almost every page. Because as we've seen, it says we're not right on the inside. Inside of us is the sinful nature. 
fallen minds, fallen hearts, fallen desires that are not a good guide to what's right or true or helpful. The heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah says. Why would my goal in life be to express it? But I'm not surprised that's what our culture wants to do because it's just another way to undermine God's word, isn't it? And it says, we care more about you and your your feelings than God does. We care more about what's good for you. Don't listen to him. He can't be trusted. Listen to what's inside. Think about it with me. There are people out there whose inner sexual desires are to be attracted to little children. Should they express those desires? At the moment, our culture says no, and and that's right, but it's not consistent. Why should they have to, to live a lie? Why should they have to restrain themselves? Well, the answer is because life is not about expressing your desires. What about the the husband with kids who falls for another woman? Not his wife. She's also got kids. We'll keep it simple. There's no abuse involved or anything like that. Just a a middle-aged man, a midlife crisis. But his feelings for her are strong. To follow them will break apart two families. And our world right now struggles to say to him, you should restrain those desires. Remember the woman you married who birthed your children. Invest there, the grass is greener where you water it. Don't listen to your heart. Keep the promises you made. But no, if the goal of life is your happiness and fulfillment by expressing your feelings, then you should go for it. But it's not. The goal is to please God. To live in loving relationship with Him and others according to His word in this world that He's made. And ironically, the people who choose that path find that's actually where true fulfillment is found. Very often. If not in this life, certainly it will be for eternity. And so before we finish, let me apply some of this to gender dysphoria. Dysphoria, if you don't know the term, means feeling severe distress. And and so gender dysphoria is the distress that a person feels when they're not comfortable with their biological sex. And we're talking about people here. This isn't politics. So let me start by borrowing some thoughts from Sam Albury, who's a Christian who who experiences same-sex attraction and uh, has thought a lot about this stuff. He says that one thing Christianity offers is a way to make sense of that experience. Here's the quote. We can uniquely account for how it is that someone could end up feeling so unat home in their own body. Because we understand as Christians that the physical creation has been subjected to frustration. It's out of joint. It doesn't work as it should. And that includes our bodies. Our bodies have been subjected to that frustration. And so none of us has a straightforward relationship with our bodies. That includes health issues, body image issues. And it would also include those who feel in some way that they don't belong in the body that they have. I think we can account for that in a unique way. Which should mean, therefore, that Christians are the most 
naturally compassionate and understanding people when it comes to this issue. There's the end of that quote. And that is a great place to start. It's not a sin to experience gender dysphoria. It's not because you have sinned. It's one of the many consequences of living in a world that is broken by all of our sin. The relationship between our bodies and our minds is, is broken. Just like with anxiety disorder or anorexia or any other dysphoria, the starting place is understanding and compassion. We can say that sounds really hard. And actually, the world's approach at the moment doesn't offer the same understanding. Its message implies that if we just get rid of heteronormativity and let people live out what they feel, the problems will go away. That's the implied message. But unfortunately, that's often not what happens. One fact that's rarely talked about is that the majority of those who undergo surgery remain depressed. I'll read out one person's story, a bit of it. Part of coming out allows me to believe in my dreams, but it never really happens. I'm still the same as I was before in that sense. Even with surgery, I'll be different to every other woman. My body reminds me of how much I lack. In some ways, what our world, uh, when our world says, there's no problem, be who you are, it actually denies the reality that people are experiencing. Uh, two other little-known facts that's worth bearing in mind. Research shows that the vast majority of children who are diagnosed end up resolving to their biological gender after puberty. It's higher than 80%, higher even than 90%. And research shows that dysphoria often coexists with other mental health problems, and so it's worthwhile seeking treatment for those as well. But let me come back to Sam Albury, who, who I quoted before. He says this, We know that the ultimate answer to that brokenness doesn't lie within our own bodies. It lies actually within the ultimate broken body of Jesus. That is the case for all of our, broken, sorry, our bodily brokenness. The solution is in Him, not in us. And so therefore, the ultimate hope for the person who is transgender is not going to be found in their own body, and in what they can and can't do with it, the ultimate hope is in Jesus because the ultimate dysphoria was when he who had no sin was made to be sin for us. That is the ultimate feeling of being in the wrong flesh and it's in that that we all have our ultimate hope. End of the quote. And so let me say, if you are experiencing gender dysphoria or you know someone, I would begin where I'd begin with any person. Not with gender or, or anything like that, but with Jesus. Come as you are. Put your trust in Him. Find love and acceptance from the God who made you and will one day restore you. You were made in the image of God. Your dysphoria doesn't disqualify you from being His child. It's part of your story, but it doesn't have to dominate your story. Your identity can be child of God in a broken world, awaiting the restoration. And from there, you start living with, with Jesus as Lord in, in every area of life. And again, that's not primarily your gender, but it, it touches everything. Your honesty, your generosity, your love. Now, over time, you will need to wrestle with what he says about gender. Like we saw last week, there, there are two genders, male and female, in the way God's made the world, though our experience of that is fallen. 
And as we saw last week, we, we are our bodies. Our biological sex is relevant to who we are. We can't just ignore it. But you'll be able to live in, in genuine hope that one day the pain will go away in the new creation. And so in the meantime, you'll seek ways to cope that aren't sinful. I don't think the Bible says we need to go along with every gender stereotype. There'll be ways that are more or less helpful. It'll be, it'll be valuable to involve mental health professionals who have experience with transgender health. And ideally, you'll find a group of Christians who can compassionately support you as you seek to live out as best you can the truths of God's Word. And the path won't be easy. But there are Christians who are living this way. And they're finding hope and meaning and joy in it. And it'll be worth it forever. Now, it's a big topic, very complicated. I'm aware I haven't said anywhere near everything that could or should be said. Let me point to a book by Mark Yarhouse called Understanding Gender Dysphoria. And if anything there has raised anything for you, can I encourage you to reach out to the church's care team or call Lifeline. But let me pull all this together and step back from that. Brothers and sisters, don't buy the lie that our feelings are reliable guides to what is right and good. The Bible says they're not. When you're scrolling through social media, don't assume that if it really resonates with you, that means it's true. Our fallen hearts and minds are easily drawn. And so we need to come back to God's Word and by the Spirit have our minds renewed. You hear something in a sermon that you think, that might make someone feel uncomfortable. Well, it's good to care about people's feelings, but that doesn't mean it's wrong or unhelpful necessarily. We need to hear the truth, sometimes even if it's uncomfortable. It could even be the diagnosis that saves the life. So don't buy the lie that the worst thing that you can ask someone to do is deny themselves. Jesus says, come follow me, you must deny yourself. And it's for your good. Let me pray. Father, we confess that there is an order outside of us and a problem within us. We believe true life is found in coming back to you, the God who made us. Through Jesus, who forgives us and restores us. Teach us to live according to your word, not our feelings. And help us to wait for the day when our humanity will be perfectly fulfilled in glory. Thank you for your glorious salvation. Amen.